Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode... Whilst terrorism is a systemic risk, there are a number of other systemic risks, catastrophic cyber outage, climate change, pandemic, of course, and how the insurance industry is going to respond to those is going to be a really interesting question for the future, because if the industry is unable to find ways to provide cover for its customers, then its relevance will surely be called into question. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I'm joined by guests and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we are honoured to have Julian Anoitzi with us and our topic will be the insurance of terrorism risks. In 2019, Julian won the Insurance Day Industry Achiever of the Year Award, an award which marked an incredible career. That career had begun in 1995 when Julian moved from his role as a junior solicitor at Berwyn Leighton Paisner to an in-house role at Chubb. A mere decade later, in 2005, Julian became CEO at CNA, followed by spells at the same level at Argo and then ProSite. However, in 2013, he became CEO of Pool Reinsurance Company Limited, known colloquially as Pool Re, the government-backed reinsurer of terrorism risks. And that is the topic that we'll be discussing today. So Julian, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. And uh, many, many thanks for um, agreeing to spend time with us. I know that you're an extremely busy man, so it is hugely appreciated. Um, Before we get on to the topic of terrorism, however, I was just wondering how you first became involved in insurance. How did you get into the industry in the first place? Uh, Well, actually has a a link to your own law firm, in fact, uh, because I was going for an interview um, at Chubb. Uh, I was in Brussels at the time, as you said earlier, working for Berwyn Leighton in their Brussels office. I had an interview to go to meet the head of claims at Chubb, uh, and the interview was apparently going to be around D&O, and I knew nothing about D&O, and I asked uh, my good friend Tim Bull what D&O meant, and he very kindly sent me an RPC publication explaining all about D&O, uh, which was great, except that when I got to the interview, it was all about E&O, and I, of course, didn't know what E&O was. So um, anyway, at least I'd tried. <laughs> <laughs> A person who uh, kind of joined us spent a whole interview thinking that PI meant, for us, that means professional indemnity. He thought it meant personal injury. So he, he had a very similar situation. Um, and as I mentioned in the introduction, there are so many aspects of your career uh, that I would love to discuss. And maybe in other podcasts, we will do so. Um, but we don't have time for that. But I was going to ask one general question, which is, uh, how did you go from being a, a very junior qualified lawyer in 1995 to being CEO of CNA just 10 years later. That is one hell of a vertiginous rise. Um, well, I'd like to say it was due to uh, ability, but I think it's probably more down to luck. But um, I think you, you, you kind of play the cards you're given, really. And, and I'd gone through, I, I'd gone, as I said earlier, to Chubb to run their, their director and officers litigation. Uh, I then went into the general counsel department I think I pretty much figured out I wanted to move on to the business side, and that was when I moved to AIG in Paris. Um, but I think when you're, you know, dare I say, it, quite good at the in-house counsel work, people try and keep you in that sort of pigeonhole. Uh, and, and very honestly, CNA at that time, this is 2003, CNA was in a very difficult position. Uh, it was probably, I think, had it not been privately owned, it probably would have gone insolvent. 
uh, and they were looking for a lawyer to come in and essentially wind up uh, their businesses in Europe, as many other American companies have done. And I managed to persuade them that I thought we could probably turn it around. And um, they gave me first the French office, then continental Europe. I guess I must have done a reasonable job because, as you said, in 2005, they made me the group chief executive for um, Europe. Which is amazing. And now, of course, CNA are doing brilliantly. So, um, and of course, now you're at Pool Re, um, and we'll come on to a little bit later as to why you made that particular move. Um, but as I understand it, kind of going back to the beginnings of Pool Re, it was formed in 1993. Um, so I appreciate that you weren't in- involved at that time. But could you talk us through the origins of Pool Re and in particular, the problem that it was designed to resolve? Sure. And of course, many parallels with the situation we're facing today. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll come on to that. But, yeah, I mean, 1993, um, you'd already had um, one very large uh, bombing in London. And then when the Baltic Exchange happened, I think the insurance and or the reinsurers, first of all, basically said, we can no longer provide reinsurance for terrorism. This is an act that's happening fairly frequently, and therefore, this is not something we can insure. And that then led the insurers to withdraw cover for terrorism insurance. And so what you had was a market failure, because without that insurance, banks weren't going to lend money, construction companies weren't going to build uh, new buildings, and the economy, I think, was faced with a very perilous situation. And so the government and the insurance industry got together and, and really what was a public-private partnership to say, you, the insurers, continue to offer terrorism insurance, and we, the government, will provide you with a loan facility should you run out of funds. And it was a very innovative scheme. It wasn't you know, just let's do this as part of central government, which many other countries did after 9-11. It was a really innovative public-private sector scheme, which has stood the test of time. And in very general terms, how does it work? Pool rate itself is a mutual insurer, isn't it, where the members are insurers themselves. So, so how does the government guarantee fit in? Uh, how is pool rate funded? All of those sorts of things. Uh, so, so very simply, a commercial business will buy terrorism insurance from its property insurer. So the property insurer will set up the property insurance, but it will also offer it the terrorism to go along with that. It will then reinsure the terrorism part of that into Pool Re, and it will pay a premium for that terrorism reinsurance. And so Pool Re collects the premiums, and the annual premium volume for Pool Re is around about £320 million. So it's collecting £320 million a year in premium from 150 different insurers across the United Kingdom. It then builds up a fund, and that fund over 27 years has built to now six and a half billion pounds. And that's after having paid out 17 different terrorism losses during those 27 years. If that six and a half billion pounds are exhausted, then the government would step in and would lend us the money to pay out claims. And we would then repay the government from future premiums. The one thing that I think is, is slightly different is, that I should add is that in, in addition to the six and a half billion, we also have about two and a half billion of commercial retrocession and insurance linked securities, capital market bonds. So the government would have to see a loss in the UK of around about 10 billion pounds before the taxpayer had to put his hand in a pocket for a loan to pull re. So I'm taking from that that the government has never done that. So it's a government-backed scheme where actually it has run so well that the government has never needed to step in. Yeah, if you look at it, the government's capitalization of the company, if you want to call it that, 
uh, has effectively allowed the company to be entirely autonomous and extremely successful, uh, and therefore distance the taxpayer from any terrorism loss in the United Kingdom. And you talked about uh, 17 separate events on which Puri has paid out. Well, what, what is it that is the trigger? Is, is it when there is an official designation of, of an event as a terror event, or, or is it something else? Yeah, it's exactly that. If the government certifies an event as an act of terrorism, then that notifies insurers that they're no longer claiming from their property reinsurers, they're claiming from their terrorism reinsurer. And uh, as I say, 17 such events in the last 27 years. And obviously, you'll remember 2017 pretty well, but you'll probably also remember uh, 1996 and the Manchester bombing. So, you know, ends of the scale. And of course, over that intervening period, the face of terrorism has changed enormously from dissident republicanism that we've just been talking about to what we see today, which is much more uh, Islamic extremism, but also far-right extremism. And of course, the ways of the methods, the vectors of terrorism have changed from sort of uh, truck bombs full of fertilizer or made out of fertilizer to today's much more sophisticated sort of cyber terrorism type attacks, or even low sophistication using guns and knives, of course, which can, you know, in today's day of modern media and, and social media means that you can achieve exactly the same effect with a very low sophistication type event. And then, of course, you've got the threat of CBRN, uh, what new technology with drones is capable of delivering. So the, the threat vectors, the threat actors, all of it has changed in those 27 years. Absolutely. And I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking, obviously, Pilri was set up in 1993. The, the year after that, the, the provisional IRA, which at that point would have been the, the immediate concern, um, declared a ceasefire. So I mean, presumably there was no discussion at that time about, well, actually, do we need it? Or, you know, and now the provisional IRA have gone away. Surely terrorism is at an end. Uh, surely we don't need a Pilri anymore. Um, presumably there were no such discussions along those lines. It was always an awareness that terrorism would come back in some form or another. Well, I think actually, Peter, I think mem memories, of course, are short, aren't they? And um, I think had when I think Good Friday was 98, and in the intervening three years between then and 9-11, I think actually there were discussions to say, we probably don't need this thing anymore. Um, but of course, Paul Rhee at that time was still dealing with the runoff of the several claims that it was already dealing with as a result of uh, the IRA bombings. So I think had 9-11 not occurred, I think probably people would have said, well, actually, terrorism has gone away. Um, but of course, when 9-11 occurred, people realized that actually you could have these incredibly big, devastating uh, attacks. And of course, that then led to the extension of the cover from simple fire and explosion to adding the CBRN um, element of that. And of course, that took it into a whole world of different magnitude. Sorry, CBRN, is that the, um, uh, the chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear? Is that right? That is... Yeah, sorry. Another, another one of those acronyms that uh, we, we're used to using. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that brings us to 2013. And what was it that attracted you to the role of CEO at Pool Re? I think it was a number of things. I think, first of all, having run a, by then a number of insurance companies, the opportunity to run one that sort of almost married my earlier career as a lawyer back with uh, my insurance career because much of what Paul Rhee was was very very legalistic very tied up in you know legal wording the, the, the different agreements that govern the relationship between it and government it and reinsurers it and insurers and also I felt that whilst it had been a tremendously 
successful company, it had in many respects sort of become a little bit, not dormant is the wrong word, but gone to sleep a little bit because you'd had that long period in the UK, certainly without any kind of terrorism event. And um, just before I joined was the Lee Rigby episode, if you remember that in 2013. Before that, you'd not had any kind of terrorism event in, in, in the UK for nearly 15 years. And it was just after the Olympics when I think everybody was on heightened alert. So I just felt that it was a real opportunity to take a, an entity which, which undoubtedly had a lot of value and modernize it really and bring it into you know, the realms of the modern world. Little did I know that terrorism would be on the front page of the Evening Standard pretty much every night that I was going home because it just suddenly became a bigger and bigger issue as Islamic fundamentalism. And you then had the Charlie Hebdo thing. So it became a really big issue. And, and it sort of went from there, really. And you talked about modernization of, of Pool Reed. Presumably it was, it was a structure, it was a, a, a company that was set up in 1993 to face one type of terrorism threat. We now have a completely different terrorism threat kind of going forwards. What, what did you perceive to be your, your main priorities in, in 2013 as part of the modernization process? I think the principal one was to take it from being a, a scheme, if you like, to being a proper reinsurer and behaving as a reinsurer. And to behave as a reinsurer, you have to understand your risk. And so we, we brought in people who were terrorism risk analysis experts. We started to understand what the risk was so that we could then advise uh, the sedent insurers what the risk was. We then started to invest in modeling techniques so that we could sort of price uh, the risk a little bit more risk reflectively. We then started to engage the private sector. The private sector had been out of terrorism insurance in the UK for 25 years at this point. We then bought the first retrocession program for Puri, which is now, by the way, the largest terrorism retrocession program anywhere in the world, 2.4 billion pounds of reinsurance market from around the world, all deployed on UK terrorism from a standing start of zero five years ago. We also issued the first uh, insurance-linked security, first catastrophe bonds for terrorism anywhere in the world. And so now, if you look at Paul Ree, what you see is much more of a reinsurance company, a company that behaves as a reinsurer, as opposed to one that is simply administering a scheme. And so its understanding of the risk, which of course changed and was changing before our eyes, everything changed. You know, the government's attitude to how it behaved as insurer of last resort was changing. Terrorism threat actors were changing into that, uh, you know, even Al-Qaeda, which was for the spectacular to Daesh, which was much more the low sophistication type losses. The kind of losses that you saw tended to be property damage. And of course, we saw uh, that now non-damage business interruption started to become the biggest source of loss. And so, you know, in 2018, we were able to get a change in the Act of Parliament to allow us to add non-damage business interruption cover. Cyber uh, as a threat vector, you know, the, the, the fact that something was triggered by a cyber uh, trigger being not covered, even though it was an act of terrorism, struck me as very anachronistic. And so we, we added the uh, cyber cover. And so there was lots and lots of different things that we have been working hard on over the last five, six years to make us into, I think, uh, a partner for the industry, a partner for government, and I think probably, you know, well-respected around the world in, in terms of what we do. And you mentioned that the worldwide situation, obviously terrorism is is an international problem. Um, so to what extent do do you coordinate with other organizations internationally? And how effective is that? It's an interesting question because you've asked me that literally on the back of um, 
a conference that was put on last week by the International Forum for Terrorism Risk Pools, um, of which there are now 17 pools from 15 countries, all focused entirely on terrorism. And what you see there is that essentially we're all dealing with essentially the same risk that manifests itself in different ways. Uh, some countries have, you know, far right problem in a greater degree than we do. Some have the, the Islamic fundamentalist problem in a greater degree than we do. The modernization of the cover to match the threat, I think, is a challenge for everybody because what you don't want is for the threat to manifest in terms of an event. And then essentially the cover that you're providing doesn't respond to that particular terrorist event because at that point you lose, I think, credibility. And so there's a lot of international you know, knowledge sharing, a lot of experts in this field, academics, who are studying uh, this. And you know, if you think of things like the effect of climate change on terrorism, not sort of thing that you'd normally think of, but actually, you know, how climate change, you know, causes mass migration and displacement of populations, which leads to radicalization, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all, you know, really interesting areas. And of course, this year, for the first year, the whole conference was broadened out into a different arena because people started to realize that whilst terrorism is a systemic risk, there are a number of other systemic risks, catastrophic cyber outage, um, climate change, uh, pandemic, of course. And how the insurance industry is going to respond to those is going to be a really interesting question for the future because if the industry is unable to find ways to provide cover for its customers, then its relevance will surely be called into question. And so the public-private partnership model is one that I think has a relevance in teaching us all how to handle the risks that we're going to be faced with in the future. And, uh, and we'll come back to that in a moment. We'll, we'll touch that upon because I'm, I'm very interested to see how that might relate to you say pandemics and climate change in particular. I'm not. I can't quite visualise how it would work with climate change. But but before we do that, just touching upon going back to terrorism. Um, to what extent is is Poolery involved in risk mitigation or risk management as opposed to mere risk transfer? Yeah, that's a really good question uh, that, that leads on from the, the sort of modernisation, if you like. I think one of the things that we realise very quickly is that the insurance industry has a history. Uh, and a track record of uh, not only paying losses, disaster risk financing, but also disaster risk management. And, and you know, the, the, the smoke alarm, the fire extinguisher, et cetera, all great examples of that. But in terrorism, and certainly if you were to have read, you know, the manual for your travel agent, let's say five years ago, you would have been told, you know, the height of the balcony on your hotel room was 1.2 meters because that would avoid you falling over it. But there would have been absolutely nothing in there about uh, you know, how to prepare yourself in the event of a terrorist attack. And so we thought that we ought to be incentivizing the implementation of government accredited protective security arrangements. So if the government was recommending, I don't know, blast proof film on your windows so that uh, you know, in the event of a blast, the window didn't uh, shatter into a thousand pieces and cut you to pieces, or you know, security cameras or concrete bollards in front of the building, et cetera, et cetera, we should be incentivizing that. And so we introduced a program of, of giving premium discounts to insureds that were actually actively engaging in protecting themselves against the terrorism threat, which of course has a, a resilience advantage, but also advantage in phase, not just terrorism, but crime, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the risk mitigation piece is really, really important part of what we do because it lowers the risk 
And if you can lower the risk, if you can make the act a harder one to perpetrate, that has to be a good one for society as a whole. Absolutely. Okay, so, so let, let's talk about the future now, because I, I know the government has recently launched uh, the latest five-year review of, of Poolry. Um, and I appreciate that you may be limited in, in the things that you can say, but that sort of coincides with your own white paper on on, on the next five years, which I, I know that you, you will be able to talk about. So, um, given that, regrettably, terrorism looks as though it's here to stay in one form or another, what are your plans for the future? How do you anticipate the next five or ten years going? Yeah, and I, look, I think I think you know we talked about modernization, we talked about evolution of the threat. Those things don't just sort of stop at a moment in time. They're, they're continuous. And, and so in the same way as the threat will doubtless be very different in five years' time, the company needs to continue to evolve with the times. And that white paper that you just referred to was an attempt by me to sort of illustrate what I believe the future shape of this company should be. But interestingly, I think you know, question number one in the review is, is there still a need for Paul Reed? And I think that's a really good question periodically to ask because just because the government has intervened in a market doesn't mean that it should stay there forever. And so um, I think you've got to start with that premise. Now, I'm pretty confident in my own mind that the insurance industry would not yet be able to take the entirety of the terrorism risk back onto its own balance sheet, the size of the insured values, the concentration of property in, let's say, central London the types of risk that we're now faced with, the CBRN that we already referred to, means that the industry is not going to be able to take those things back onto its own balance sheet. But we do need to continue to drive towards understanding the risk better and giving the taxpayer an exit strategy. Otherwise, you know, the government's intervening in a market forever. So you need to find ways to encourage people to understand what the threat is and to make the investment of that risk financing purchase so that you don't have the problem of uninsured people post-event. And that means affordability of the product, et cetera, et cetera. It also means making it easier for the insurance companies to actually sell the product. And, and I think the way we're proposing to do that is to change the structure of the treaty from a facultative one that it is today into a treaty structure in the future, because that will give much more control to the insurers to decide how they price the product, how they generate a competitive market, how much of the risk they want to retain themselves versus how much they want to pass off to us. And then I think looking at how you then end this over time, one idea I think that is worth considering is the bifurcation of the risk from, let's say, the standard conventional terrorism, which I think most insurers are fairly comfortable with and able to deal with, to, let's say, the non-conventional, the cyber, the CBRN, where perhaps they're not comfortable and wouldn't be able to take that risk, and that that needs to then stay with the government. And then, you know, how you price the the, the sharing of the risk, et cetera, et cetera. So there's quite a lot in there, I appreciate. But I think if we can do that, if we can genuinely make those changes, we will demonstrate that the UK and the UK insurance and reinsurance industry is world-leading in the way it thinks about these kind of risks and doesn't just expect the government to provide it with a blank check. You mentioned cyber, and I'd like to explore that a little bit further. But what sort of risks are we talking about with cyber? I know it's described as a catastrophic cyber, but is that state-sponsored cyber attacks? Or is it because this sort of feeds in with the definition of terrorism as well, isn't it? What is terrorism in the current context? Does it include state-sponsored stuff, or does it have to be sub-state groups? Because obviously back in the 70s and 80s, it was always sub-state groups, whether it's ETA or IRA or 
Black September or, or whatever it might be, a Baden-Meinhof gang. Whereas now it's a, you know, it, it is a different level, isn't it? So are there discussions around what is terrorism, definitions of terrorism, whether a state-sponsored cyber attack constitutes a terrorist attack or, or so that's a very long-winded question, but I hope you get the general gist of it. Oh, more than get the general gist of it. That is, I think, the nub of one of the most important debates that's going on in this world, the terrorism world today. But you told me we had 25 minutes, and that's, that's <laughs> half an hour worth of debate right there on its own. Um, but you're absolutely right in the way you characterize the, the discussion. I mean, I'll make two comments. One on cyber. There is an enormous amount of cyber risk that the private market does not need any kind of state backing for um, at all. And that we have to make sure that they take that risk on their own balance sheet. But there are areas and elements of cyber that they'll never be able to provide insurance for and that the state will always be the one that is ultimately on the hook for. I'm talking about catastrophic outage or, as you put it, state-sponsored attack. And I think this is where the second comment I'll make gets into the difference between, let's say, what is commonly delineated as being terrorism what, on the other hand, might commonly be delineated as war, and then the huge chasm that sits in the middle. Because if you are talking about the insurance industry's definition of war, which requires a declaration of war, well, when was the last time there was a declaration of war? But on the other hand, would you consider the actions of the Russian or the Chinese or the Iranian states as effectively acts of war or hostile acts? In which case, what is a hostile act of a nation state if it isn't an act of war? So where does that end and where does terrorism begin? Because, of course, now you have nation states that will use terrorist groups as proxies or you will have nation states that will use agencies to implement their objectives abroad. And so it's the distance, if you like, from the nation state, that they are state actors, they're state proxies. So that is a hugely complex area, which is being debated both by us, but also by the wider insurance industry, and needs to be resolved for the same reason, as I said earlier, that if we have an event, we do not want to be arguing with the customer on the street as to, oh, well, no, sorry, that's, that was a state-sponsored act of terrorism. We don't cover those. We have to be clear in what we do and don't cover. And I, I know that uh, Pool Resolutions is, is your way of liaising with academics and trying to get consensus around answers to these sorts of questions. Is that something which you'd look to grow over the next few years as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think Pool Resolutions is, in a sense, what it is, is an economy of scale for the insurance industry to carry out the kind of R&D that individual companies wouldn't be able to do because their premium volume in terrorism would be too small. And so Pool Resolutions is the sort of consulting arm of the business that is, as you rightly say, liaising with academics worldwide and then providing input into how we model these risks, how we therefore price these risks, allowing therefore the insurance industry to take more of the risk, allowing the reinsurance industry and the capital markets to take more of the risk. There's a huge value in that, and we have to continue to grow that side of the, of the company. And the final question you'd be pleased to hear um, relates to other, other types of risks where this model could be used. Um, I was listening this morning to a YouTube video of you back in 2017, where you talked about pandemics. First of all, can this sort of model be used for, you mentioned um, climate change, pandemics, uh, catastrophic cyber or whatever. Um, to what extent can this model be used or does it have to be an evolved model? 
Yeah, look, I mean, that is the $24 million question that governments and industries around the world are asking themselves. My perspective on it, just to make a few comments, I'm not going to unfortunately give you the 24-carat answer, but I'll make some comments on it. The first thing is, as an industry, we have got to remember that our job is to manage our customers' risk, not just our own. And therefore, if we withdraw from risk every time something occurs with which we're not comfortable, then I think we will be failing in our duty. In the same way as Pool Reef Solutions has helped the industry get comfortable with a level of risk that they're prepared to take in the terrorism arena, we have to do the same thing in pandemic and other systemic areas of risk. We also have to be honest with the government to say we cannot de-risk them entirely on this. We cannot take that risk off of their balance sheet. In the end of the day, these kind of issues, only the government's balance sheet is ever going to be big enough. But risk transfer has to therefore give way to risk sharing because it cannot be right that the taxpayer is left with the entirety of the bill and that private sector money isn't at least put in some way at risk or that we find a way to put private sector money in some way at risk. And so the answer to your question is, I believe that when you come to issues which are in what I call the top right-hand corner of the National Risk Register, and you've mentioned them all pretty much, the private sector and the government have got to understand each other. We've got to understand what the policy objective is, and they've got to understand what the value of the private sector can bring. And it's not just risk financing, it's all those other things I mentioned. It's the understanding of the risk, the academic liaison so that you get a better study of the risk. It's the modeling that we can then do with our actuaries, our understanding of how um, you know, these risks manifest. That value in a public-private partnership, I believe, is the way to manage society's risks in the future. Brilliant. That was absolutely fascinating. Julian, before I let you go, one final question um, all about, you've obviously had an amazing career in insurance. If, uh, if an 18-year-old uh, came to you and said, uh, Mr. Noitzi, should I, should I get involved in insurance? And, and you know, what's the inspirational thing that you would tell them? <laughs> um, well, I, I, think, I, think it's a great, I think it's a great industry uh, to start with. I think what I would tell an 18-year-old is that the only premise on which they should come into the insurance industry is if they are willing to push um, and push for change. In other words, yes, they must learn how risk is managed and priced, etc. But we are a, a, an old industry and we need new ideas and 18-year-olds coming in need to bring us those new ideas. That was wonderful. Julian, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production, recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts, and of course, our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes. Thank you.